Well, great. I want to I wanna pray once more. I, I, um, I mentioned I'm burdened for our city, but I'm, I'm also burdened for our nation. Um, we've just seen so many just different things hit the news that have been just uh, heartbreaking. I don't know if uh, you've heard about the, the, the case uh, of Stanford University student with the, the, the rape trial and uh, six-month sentencing, and just breaks my heart that, that a crime like that could be uh, punished so lightly. And um, I'm, also, I'm also grieved and just uh, at the thought of um, that incident with, at the zoo with the, the, the child who fell into the cage of the gorilla. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. One, a comment I read on, on Facebook, and, of course, uh, everyone's got an opinion. But someone said something to the effect, uh, effect of how horrible it was that this majestic creature was put down because of this situation. And, and it just struck me that we don't see humanity as more majestic than creation. And um, the child was far more majestic uh, than, than the gorilla. And as, as heartbreaking and sad as it is, it really was. But um, so, our society sees things backwards so often. And the image of God in humanity is not valued. It's not valued in this woman at, in California in Stanford. It's not vi- valued in this child. And it just, it, it, it breaks my heart. I'm also burdened, you know, at the, the, the passing of, of, of Muhammad Ali and um, a man who had many great, great uh, attributes in his life. Um, but I don't know if we're grieved by the fact that he died a man who didn't know Jesus. And he won't rest in peace. He will be separated from God for eternity. Um, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. And so there are just different things in our society that sometimes we just keep, we hear it, and um, we might not take a step back and look at it from a perspective that's biblical. And, and, um, and there are things to celebrate, and there are things to grieve. And I want to make sure that we see things with, with a, a, a grid that God sees them. As a people that are made in God's image. But our world is broken. And so as we, as we even open up right now, I just want to just bring that before us. It's been burdened for some time about these points. And I, just, I want us to think critically, think biblically, think for God's glory as we see the news and as we interact with people. So let's pray. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, um, God, I love you, Lord. And uh, we love you, Lord. And there are so many things in our society that's just uh, this pulling at our hearts, God. Our, our understandings of justice just seem so twisted, Lord. When, when someone is attacked and victimized and, and the perpetrator is made out to be the victim, it just, it just grieves us, God. He's angry, God. And Lord, I know we are to love our enemies. But Lord, we also want to love justice and plead the cause of the helpless and those who've been abused and taken advantage of, God. So Lord, it just seems that justice is only going to be served in part. But we pray, Lord, that you would work. God, we don't know the name or face of this woman who was raped there at Stanford University, but you know her, Lord. God, you know everything about her. God, she is made in your image. And I don't know if she knows Jesus, but Lord, I pray that through her brokenness, she could find healing. As we sang, through the stripes and wounds of Jesus, she could be healed. So we pray for her. God, we pray that our nation would see people as image bearers of God. God, I pray that we would see people. That when people get us angry, that we would see them, though, as those who are made in your image. And God, I, I pray, Lord, that even as we, um, we can celebrate so many wonderful attributes of people and celebrities and athletes, and God is so good, and we're thankful, especially for those who take a stand, as Muhammad Ali did, in so many wonderful ways. Thank you for that. But God, I pray that we would always see people and just think, do they know Jesus? Because when we take our last breath, that 
is all that matters. And so, Lord, give us that focus and that urgency. Lord, we pray for this city of Chicago that we love. Oh, Lord, unite your church. Tear down the walls of Satan that he has put up to divide us, to bring death. And we pray for life to reign and to prevail. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know it's a heavy start, but sometimes that's necessary. Life is heavy at times. Have you ever seen a video of a king cobra being charmed by a snake charmer? You ever think that person's out of his mind? I was watching some videos recently of a guy who charmed a snake and actually went and kissed the thing on its lips. Why would you kiss a snake, first of all? A cobra, second of all. And I was reading up on this. I was like, what are these, how do these snake charmers do it? And I, I learned a few different things. That some of them have a trick, and they actually sometimes defang the snake, and you don't know it. And so, of course, they're not afraid because it can't do anything to them. Or sometimes they give them this certain food that clogs their venomous ducts on their teeth. That was interesting, too. Another thing interesting I learned was that snakes aren't charmed by the sound because they don't have the ability to hear those kind of sounds. But what it is, a snake charmer has that little flute thing, and that device is actually what charms a snake. You see snake charmers sometimes move their legs. And what happens is these king cobras see these movements, and they think it's a predator. And they get into defense mode and not attack mode. And they end up standing back and aren't ready there to protect, protect themselves to the point where this person can come and touch it on the head or even slap it on the head. You ever seen that? They just slap it on the top of the head to show their authority over the cobra. And man, I just I see that and think, this king cobra is like vicious. It hisses. Like it's, like, it's like, what in the world? The thing's venomous. It's long. It's powerful. And yet it does nothing because it's been charmed. It's been lured. It has been put aside. And, you know, I, I, I think this is true oftentimes of many Christians in our nation. See, when you become a child of God, when you put your faith in Jesus, God gives you his Holy Spirit to live within you. And there is a supernatural power at work in your life, the kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead and has given eternal life. And here we are, oftentimes as the church, this powerful potential of force in our society, and we've been charmed. We've been charmed by different motions and movements, and we become, we get in defense mode and not attack mode. We stand back, and we tend to lose and forget what God has made us to be. And we get charmed by our comforts. You are in air-conditioned room right now. And praise God for that yesterday. This, this is part of our culture. And it's not to become like, you know, mad at air conditioning. We're grateful for it. But our comforts charm us. It's, it's that, that steady uh, movement that helps us put our feet back and get in our couch and get in our shorts in our air conditioning room. And we forget the urgency of our lives, that, that you have an expiration date. You will breathe your last one day, and you don't know when that day will be. And so many of us get charmed by our comforts and charmed by our fears that prevent us from moving out. We're, we're afraid of things, so we don't, we don't go out and do the kind of things we know God wants us to do. Sometimes we, we get charmed by our own challenges in life. Like, man, life's as hard for me as it is. I ain't trying to do anything else. I'm trying to manage this mess right here. I'm not worried about doing God's will right now. God, I need to fix this. And we, we get charmed in different ways in life. And, and what I hope is that this message, this weighty message we're about to get into from Mark 6, would awaken us. That we would see ourselves as the church, the spirit-empowered church who can do supernatural things for God.
Now, those who are part of the church are those who've put their faith in Jesus. And as you come today, you might be searching this Christianity thing out. You might try to figure out, is this, is this really for me? Or maybe you say, you know, I am a Christian, but as we start talking, you realize, actually, I don't know if that's where I'm at. Yes, I can talk about it, but I don't know if I know it. Erica and I were in Texas last week, and we took a, a, we had an airport ride from our airport to the hotel, and we got in a conversation with the lady. It's kind of like Uber. It's called Wings. They have it out there in Texas. And, and this, this, this lady, we started talking with her, and I knew, I've got 30 minutes with you. I, I, want, I want you to know about Jesus. So, I mean, I may never see her again. So we're trying to bridge this conversation, and we start talking and God opens doors for me to start talking about Jesus and share the gospel with her. And quickly, I got a lot of affirmations like, yes, yes, yeah. And a lot of God this and God that. And I was just trying to get to the heart and see where she was at. And we got to the hotel and we got out of the car. And I just talked with Erica. I said, you know, I don't know if she heard what we're saying. She said, I heard, and Erica said, I heard a lot about God, but I didn't hear much about Jesus. And I think a lot of us can say, yes, we are Christians what really hasn't mattered in your life. And so what, what I want to see today, and I pray that what would happen, is that God would awaken us. And for those who know Jesus, we would be spurred on to not be charmed by life. And for others who might think, hey, I know Jesus, but no, maybe I really don't. Maybe I'm not really living for him. That you'd be awakened to really know him and walk with him. And others who know, hey, I don't know Jesus, and that's why I'm here. I pray you would see him in all his beauty and majesty and the cost of following him as a cost that's worth giving in life. So we find ourselves in the book of Mark. We've been going through this book. So turn your Bibles there if you have one. If you don't, there's one in a pew in front of you. We're in the book of Mark, chapter 6. We titled this series, Follow Me, because that's a refrain that Jesus gives several times in the book of Mark. He tells people, follow me. And the very act of following Jesus means I'm choosing to not follow myself, which is to say I've raised my white flag. But part of that white flag lifestyle means that there are things that come with it that maybe we don't want to hear. And one of those things is that there is a cost in following Jesus. There are some real sacrifices. We're going to see that these are real, but we're also going to see that Jesus is worth it. And my prayer is that at the end of this message, you would say, I will give everything, and even still, I would not have given enough, because Jesus is worth it. We come to Mark chapter 6. Last week, Jeremy preached, opening up the chapter, and how Jesus went back to his hometown and was rejected by his own family, his own neighbors, the kid he played across the street with, the people who babysat him, the, the, the family, those in his village, they rejected him. And then he sends out his disciples, and he tells them, be ready, because you'll be rejected as well. And in both cases, Jesus says, but we got to keep on going. And so now we come to Mark 6, verse 14, and we see another vision of rejection. I'm going to read here just the first few verses to set the stage for us. It says in Mark 6, 14, King Herod heard of it. It referring to all the miraculous things Jesus was doing. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. This section here is a parenthesis in the midst of Mark's story, but it's not a rabbit trail that's not helpful. It's an intentional parenthesis to help us see some things that we need to see. But what we see here is that Herod heard of the news that Jesus was doing many great things, many miracles. And as we see throughout the book of Mark, nowhere are they questioning if these things happened. Never are they saying, no, that didn't really happen. He didn't really hail that paralyzed man. He didn't really uh, feed those 5,000 people. Never. What we do see is they don't question if Jesus did it, but they question how he was able to do it. And Herod is here wondering, how does Jesus do this? And three different answers are given to us. Some people say, maybe it's Elijah. Well, if you read the Bible, Elijah's been dead for hundreds of years. 
And they say maybe it's one of the prophets of old, and those have been dead for hundreds of years. And then maybe it's John the Baptist, and we find out here who is dead as well. And all three ideas of how Jesus was doing this was traced back to someone surely must have raised from the dead to make this happen. Because what they're seeing is this. They're seeing something supernatural at work. And they're thinking no ordinary man can do the things that Jesus is doing. Something supernatural must be at work here. But what Mark wants us to see here is the rabbit trail of, hey, by the way, what did happen to John the Baptist? You remember in Mark chapter 1, John is the one that paved the way for Jesus. He he was the one that laid it down. He was the motorcade that went before Jesus, the president, so to speak. And John told people, turn from your sins. God is here. God's kingdom has arrived. And then he just disappears from the story. And now Jesus is here, and we learn about Jesus' life. But we start wondering, what happened to John? And Mark's like, let me tell you what happened to John. And as I tell you what happened to John, I want you to hear what will happen to followers of Jesus. I want you to hear of the hardship we will all face if we live for Jesus in a devoted way. But Mark also wants us to hear, don't be discouraged by this, because even in the hardships, God is doing something. And so we see in verse 16, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. And we are called to ask, how did that happen to John? Well, Mark tells us about John's fate here in verse 18. He says, for, which means this is why he was beheaded. I'm sorry, back up in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And we're like, this is like Jerry Springer material here. <laughs> so let me, let me unpack this. Herod was the king of the land. He was married. And his brother Philip was married to a lady named Herodias. And Herod liked his brother's wife So he divorced his own wife to take his brother's wife as his own. He was the king. He could do that. John the Baptist, the one who baptized people, it wasn't his last name, by the way. It wasn't the Baptist. He was the one who baptized people. John said, you know, that's not okay, Herod. This is is not okay for you to do that. What we see is that nobody's exempt from God's standards. Not even the king of the land, not even a man who had the snap of a finger had people at his command. Nobody was exempt from God's God's standard. And here John is making this known. What do we know about John? Well, we see right now the guy's got some conviction. Confronting the leader in his land who can kill him on the spot. We also have seen that John believed that Jesus was the one who was going to make things right. And he wanted everybody to know about it. And he told people, repent, which means turn away from your sins, for God's kingdom is here. John says, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Jesus says this of John in Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That, my friends, is a good endorsement. Jesus himself says, among every person who is born of a woman, which is everyone, John is the greatest. John is the greatest. And Jesus understood greatness. And John's greatness was in his humility and his passion for the truth and his love for Jesus and his love for the kingdom of God. In fact, there's a story in John 3 where Jesus begins to baptize people in the Jordan River. And he's beginning to start his ministry. And people come up to John and say, John, hey, the one you talked about, he's over here baptizing. He's stealing your gig here. You know, you got kind of famous doing his baptism thing. He, he's trying, this is competition. He moved in down the street. And John 3.30, 
John says these words. He says, he basically says, it's okay because he must increase and I must decrease. Here's a man that understood my purpose in life is to exalt the name of Jesus and get out of the way. Among those born of a woman, surely none greater than John. And it's this John who looks Herod in the eye and says, you are not supposed to take your brother's wife. That does not honor God. Well, Herod had one of two things to do, get mad or let it go, and he was mad. But someone that was even more mad than him was Herodias. She was especially livid at John the Baptist's courage to speak up. Verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Why? For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Hear that? See, Herod arrested John. His wife wanted him arrested, and Herod's thinking, happy wife, happy life. And let me put John in prison. She's like, I want him dead. He's like, I don't think I can get there, though. I fear this guy. He's clearly a righteous man. He's doing great things. And he was bothered by John's preaching, but it also says he heard it gladly. He was perplexed and heard it gladly. Isn't that interesting? How John had this magnetic nature to his teaching that it, defla- it, it repelled Herod. Herod was like, I don't like this. I don't like being told that I'm wrong for what I'm doing. I don't like that. But he heard it gladly in that there's probably something in Herod saying, but what you're saying sounds right. And John didn't blush. He laid out the truth. Herod, you have sinned. This is wrong. And I don't doubt Herod said, that John said, Herod, turn from your sin. Make things right. Repent and receive God's forgiveness and live for him. And so there is John in prison, in prison, talking to Herod. And Herod is there, his wife in one ear and his conviction in the other. What's Herod going to do? What's going to happen of John, this man who baptized? Well, we see here in verse 9, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. These were the who's who of society. These were the people who had a name for themselves. It's only natural that the king would have an invitation-only birthday kind of bash. And so he has all these people over. Verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Hear that. Herodias' daughter, which was not Herod's daughter, she came in and did a dance for King Herod and all his buddies. And something's telling me it wasn't a waltz. It was the kind of dance that got his attention and the attention of the people around him. The kind of dance where he took some pride in what was taking place at his birthday party. And it says, And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Ask me for whatever you wish. See, this was the first episode of Dancing with the Stars. And Herod was impressed, and he offered her anything she wanted. And imagine all the power he just put in this girl's hands. Ask me for whatever you wish. And then he says this, and he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, in verse 23, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. This was a man who had the authority to deliver on the promise he just made to her. And so now we have this young lady Probably wondering, hmm, maybe an island off the Mediterranean. Maybe a palace overlooking a nice site. Maybe name a city after me. In fact, Herod had done that for someone else. Maybe riches. Maybe a suitor who's of royalty so I can guarantee royalty for the rest of my life. All these things were at her grasp. 
ask for whatever you want. What the story doesn't tell us is that Herodias' daughter was planted there with a plan from Herodias herself. She knew Herod, and she knew his foolishness. Verse 24, and the girl went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? Now mom's got a voice here, which was always the plan probably. And she said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Now Herodias has created a plan. Now she might get her wishes fulfilled. King Herod had made this vow in front of all of his buddies, all of his friends at his big grand birthday bash. And when that girl comes back in the room, what will he do? When she says, here's a platter, I want John's head on it. Because if Herod doesn't do it, he's soft. If he tweaks his words, then he's a liar. And now it's the pressure of his guests and the pressure of his words that put him in a place that he didn't want to be in. Verse 25, she came in, and hear the wording that Mark uses here. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Hear the urgency that Mark uses. Immediately, haste, at once. The girl wasted no time, and I'm sure her mom said, get there and go back quickly before those people leave. Get there quickly before he finds a loophole in his promise. Put him on the spot and get my wishes done. Verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry. Exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. A man who made a rash promise and now realizes he can't break it without losing his own reputation. Verse 27. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison. Isn't that wild? The one of whom none born of woman greater than him dies in a prison by himself, beheaded at the wishes of a little girl after her dance. They brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when John's disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. It's hard to read that and not feel like something's wrong in this story. It's hard to read that and be like, God, what's that about? This man who had far more faith than I've ever had, he loved you. Jesus, he he gave his life for you. He lived in the wilderness, out there telling people in the outskirts to come to you. He's there in prison after all for standing up for you, Jesus. Because he wanted the truth to become known. He wanted the sanctity of marriage elevated. And he was thrown in prison for it. And as I read that, all the justice in my heart is bothered by it. How is John executed in a prison by himself? And I think Mark puts these words in his gospel here because I think he wanted his readers to stop, to think, to count the cost, and then to act. Perhaps his readers were being charmed by different things in their day. We know we have been by our comforts, by our fears, by our ambitions. 
And what Mark wants you to hear and wants me to hear is stop, think, count the cost, and now what will you do? Because this is the life of those who follow Jesus. When we speak the truth, it will attract some and repel others. And so what I want us to do is to consider this. You will hear no prosperity preacher read John 15, 18 through 20, which says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Who's your master? It's Jesus. And that makes you his servant. And Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. Jesus Jesus was John's master. They persecuted Jesus, they persecuted John. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 1 Peter 3.14, but even if I should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And in Paul's word in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all, can you say all? all? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. Mark tells us here, demonstrate through this story, that when we want our lives to align with following Jesus, opposition will meet us. And there's all kinds of opposition we're going to face. Sometimes it's physical opposition. And I'm quite sure many of us, if not all of us, have not faced physical force for knowing Jesus. But you must know, church, that this is not the case globally. Our brothers and sisters are being killed for being Christians. And I've shared these stats with you before. You need to hear them again because I want us to awaken. Reuters reports that in the average year, 2000, and this is in 2013, 2,123 Christians were killed for their faith. And that is the most conservative figure you will find. And what that means is six Christians a day. But in a more broader definition of those who were killed because their family was Christian and they're with their family and maybe they weren't vocally Uh, affirming Jesus at the moment of their death, but they were killed because they are Christians, is an estimated 105,000 Christians were killed in 2011. 105,000. That's 287 of our brothers and sisters every day. That's 11 every hour. That's one every six minutes. And that's six before I finish this message. God wants us to awaken, church. John's not an anomaly. I think the U.S. is an anomaly. And I just pray that God would awaken our hearts to see That Jesus is worth it. But there is a cost. And we've got to count it. We've got to count it. If we're not counting it, are we following Jesus? All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, says Paul. And sometimes it's physical, even to the point of death. But sometimes it's verbal. If you stand up for the truth, you're going to hear name-calling. You're going to hear people call you a bigot close-minded, exclusive, know-it-all. And that's opposition we face when we say, Jesus, you are the only way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's an estimated 1.2 billion Muslims in our world right now who are in a fast called Ramadan for this month, June 5th to July 5th. And during Ramadan, there's no eating or drinking, no intimacy or no kind of activity that would be any sort of delightful from sunup to sundown. 
in hopes that their efforts would please their God in some form or another. Church family, I hope and pray that as we consider that, that our hearts would be grieved. And even as we, just two blocks away from us, have a mosque that meets every week, you drive down Belmont, you see the thing packed out. Do we have a burden for people? Or are we too afraid of what we hear in the news and watch on TV and, and say, well, we don't want the opposition. We don't want, we don't want the physical fear. We don't want the verbal assault. Or we, we love people who we know 1.2 billion are separated from Jesus, lost, striving for something they will never attain, that Jesus himself has striven for us so that we can have it through faith in him. You can't please God and earn his favor. Jesus pleased God and earned his favor for you. And others need to hear that. But when we are charmed, we don't speak that. And that's not that we're supposed to be in your face and invite persecution because we're being stubborn and offensive. The gospel is offensive. You don't have to be. Herodias was offended that John said that was sinful. That's wrong. But I'm sure he wasn't in her face like, back down, lady, you're wrong. No. I'm sure John's like, hey, you you can't do this. This dishonors God. And so we will face physical assault sometimes and verbal assault. Sometimes it's even loss of privileges. We spent the weekend with a friend of ours who was a former Major League Baseball pitcher, and I shared this with the youth on our youth night on Friday. And he pitched for the Atlanta Braves for several years and got traded to the San Francisco Giants. And after, I think, one or two seasons with them, he was cut from the team. And the reason given was because of his extracurricular interactions with his teammates. And he says, the only thing I'm doing that they don't want me to do is telling my friends about Jesus. He filed a grievance with the Players Association, didn't win anything. And this is the cost. He lost his childhood dream for Jesus, which I know he was glad to do. We're, we're going to face opposition if we stand for the truth. Sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes the attack is on us. And we're feeling that pressure. We're feeling ourselves just struggling because we know we're being attacked because we want to stand for our faith. And I want you to remember that this is a spiritual war we're in. And when you feel like, you know what, I shouldn't speak up. No, I shouldn't live for Jesus. That's because you're in a spiritual war where Satan doesn't want you to live for Jesus or speak up. And that's part of the fight, church. So let's get in it. Sometimes we ask, Paul says, all who live a godly life will be persecuted. I'm trying to live a godly life, but I ain't being persecuted. Here are two, two ideas. First of all is enjoy it by leveraging your freedom. You're not facing opposition. Say, God praise you because now I'm, just, I'm more available to do more for you. And just do it. Just speak up and keep telling people. But sometimes we don't face opposition because we're not saying anything that's worth being opposed. And the truth of Jesus is opposed by the world. It's magnetic. You put two magnets together, you flip them over, they connect. You flip them again, they repel. That's what the truth of God's word is like. So sometimes we don't face opposition because we aren't sharing it. Light exposes, and sometimes that's hard for people to hear. Church, as we are seeking to do this, as we want to be like John the Baptist and be like others, there there are a couple things I want us to understand. That being humble does not mean being passive. It's good to be humble, but humility doesn't equate passivity. You can be bold and humble. And that's what God wants for you. Boldness does, does not equate arrogance. We could be really bold about Jesus and all arrogant about it. God doesn't want that either. It's the humility, it's the boldness put together which declares truth relationally to other people all around us. I'm confident that's what John did and that's what others have done. John the Baptist died in a cell by himself. But I'm, I'm pretty sure he would say this was all worth it. 
How? We're told in Scripture that John spent his days in the wilderness eating wild honey, eating locusts as his diet. He was out there, though, because he wanted to baptize people in the Jordan River. But he only baptized those who turned from their sin and repented. And what I'm confident is John would say this sacrifice, which brings new life through people who put their faith in God's plan, far outweighs the privileges and comforts of having lived somewhere else. And I'm confident John, as others in the scriptures who've lost their life for Jesus, would say, if Jesus' name was advanced and God was glorified, there is no price too heavy to pay for that message. Church, we've got one life to live. How will we invest it? In the year 156 AD, a man by the name of Polycarp, a disciple of John, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, he was uh, 86 years old when he was arrested for being a Christian. And the authorities said to him, they told him to, to turn from his faith. They said, have respect. Say that Caesar is Lord and offer incense and save yourselves, yourself. And they told him, have respect for your old age. Just do this. Swear by the divinity of Caesar. Repent and say, away with the atheists. That's what they called Christians because they denied the Roman gods. But then Polycarp there, facing his executioners, said this. For 86 years, I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And at 86, year old, 86 years old, Polycarp was burned to death, a follower of Jesus. Fast forward 50 years, a woman, 22-year-old girl, by the name of Perpetua, <clears throat> mother of an infant child, arrested for becoming a Christian. They pleaded with, with her to turn away from her faith. And one day in prison, her dad met her there. And her dad said to her, come on, just, just sacrifice to Caesar. Say that he is Lord. And she told her father, she says, do you see this vase over here? And she said, could it be any other name than what it is? And her father said, no. And she says, well, so too I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. We can tell stories of church history and even of our present day of one brother and sister of ours after the other who said there is no price too heavy to pay. So I pray that God would awaken us to nine realities here. Some of them I'll go through quickly. Some of them I'll take my time with. Awaken us, God, to the reality of the charming nature of our comforts. I want you to ask yourself, what's charming you right now? What's causing you to back off? Secondly, God, awaken us to the paralyzing nature of fear. So many of us are so afraid to suffer. God, awaken us to that. Awaken us, thirdly, to, the, to costly discipleship. It says, God, why am I not facing opposition? Is it because I'm not speaking? Fourthly, awaken us to the scandal of the cross and help us see the glories of the gospel. It's so precious. Jesus saves lives and changes people. I pray that we would see that. Fifthly, awaken us to the power of a life well-lived and a truth well-taught. Herod didn't know what to do with John. I hate this guy, but I want to listen to him. And it's because it was a life well-lived and a truth well-taught. And let it be said of us the same. Seventhly, God, awaken us to the battlefield of marriage. Isn't it interesting that the thing that got John killed was the standing up for the sanctity of marriage? The thing that's most under attack in our day and age. See, God has designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for all time. This is his good design. And in our society, it's become so broken. We're so broken. Broken sexually, broken in our, all of our ideas of marriage and God's design. 
And I know there's going to come a day that when we speak His truth from this pulpit, we can and will be arrested. But God, awaken us because your marriage is important. This is the beauty of marriage. This is why it's important. Marriage gives us a picture of the beautiful unity between the Trinity, God Himself, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And when a couple gets married, two become one. As, the, as our God is one God, three persons. Marriage reflects that. Marriage reflects the image of God. John stood for it and died for it. God awaken us to it. Eighthly, God awaken us to the price our children may pay for the faith. A lot of us are like, you know what? I, I, okay, God, I'm willing. I'm willing to suffer. It's just not these little ones here. God, I'm willing to suffer, but... When they get older, I, I want to keep them bubble-wrapped. And it's so hard for us to hold our kids like this and say, God, send them wherever you want them to be. Let them go wherever with the courage and confidence of the gospel, and I will hold them up and say, God, they're yours. And ninthly, God, awaken us to the realities that this is the reality of many of our brothers and sisters today, right now. In the end of 1955, five men from the United States went out to Ecuador. Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Raju Darian, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint. And they went there to reach a tribe in Ecuador with the gospel. And they took their time building relationships with people. And they wanted them to know about Jesus. And they had some great inroads that were happening in Finally, they thought, you know what, we can walk over to their village because these people were known to be a vicious, violent people. And on January 8th, 1956, these five missionaries were found floating in a river with spears in their backs. Six years earlier, seven years earlier, Jim Elliott had written in his journal these words, he says this on October 28th, 1949, in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Read that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We can't keep this life. So will you give it to gain what you will never lose, which is eternal life? And there that day, Jim Elliott gave all. And what the death of these five men meant was an awakening in our nation for missionaries to be sent out throughout the world. My hope as we see John the Baptist's story, who stood for the truth, who stood for the gospel of Jesus, who died in a cold prison, executed, beheaded, who, who would have said it is worth it? My prayer is that God would awaken us, church. Maybe God's tugging in some of your hearts to be global missionaries, to go overseas and saying there's no cost too big. And maybe for others of you, you're saying, I, I really don't, I honestly don't sense that call to overseas mission, but I'm called here. These, these, this is my mission field. Will you give what you are willing to get rid, of, get rid of and lose to gain what you cannot lose? This is the call for us, church. It's ultimately having a no matter what mindset. This is God's word for us, church. And let us be those courageous followers of Jesus. As I said in the beginning, this is not where you're at. If you don't know Jesus, man, we want you to know him. Because live, laying down our lives for him is a life of joy and of forgiveness, and of hope, and of pleasure because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We want you to know him. I want to pray. We're going to close up our service with a concluding song that reminds us to raise our white flags. We're going to have prayer leaders in the front and in the back. And I just, I, I want to just, I want you guys to respond in some way or another that God is doing in your heart to, to remind you of the sacrifice, to pray for your brothers and sisters, or maybe to surrender your life to Jesus for the first time. So let's rise to our feet, church. Let's stand up, and let's pray together.
Father in heaven, uh, we, we know, Lord, um, that this life is temporary. God, that this isn't all that there is, that there's something greater that awaits all of your children. And so, God, I pray for everyone here, for all of us, Lord, that when we face opposition at school, at the workplace, at the dinner table, on the block, at the street corner, at the park, Lord, that we would strive to be humble yet bold, and that we would see the glories of heaven to far outweigh the sacrifices of this earth. God, help us not be charmed by our comforts, charmed by our fears, charmed by the things of this life. But may we, the church, empowered by your spirit, be a force in our society and throughout this world, sharing the hope of eternal life through faith in Jesus. God, may this be true of us at the brook. Awaken us, we pray, oh God. Awaken us. In Jesus' name.